Pray with me, please. Father, just a moment ago, we sang, great is thy faithfulness. Now, as we turn to your word, we find that you are more faithful than we have dared to hope. You are more faithful than anyone or anything else that we have ever experienced in the course of our lives. And so, it is upon your faithfulness that our hope rests this morning. So, Father, as we look now to your word, may your spirit come and help us to see wonderful things in it. Open our hearts to the assuring hope that is to be found in the text this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 8. When I was 17 years old, I went on about a month-long missions trip to Kenya. And due to some prior obligations in my schedule, I had to fly in about a week after the rest of my team had already arrived in the country. So the day that I flew in, I had been traveling for about 24 hours consecutively through the United Kingdom and Germany. I arrived completely exhausted, very jet-lagged, but it was the middle of the day when I arrived in Kenya, and it happened to be the day that my team had set aside for doing some touristy kind of activities. So they picked me up from the airport, and then they proceeded into downtown Nairobi, which is the capital city of Kenya, in order to do some shopping in the downtown Maasai market. It's the largest open-air market in Kenya. It's huge, blocks and blocks of open market area. Now, because I was fresh off of the plane, I hadn't had an opportunity yet to exchange any of my American dollars into Kenyan shillings. I found out pretty quickly that it was a very big mistake to negotiate in that market with American dollars. American dollars were at a premium, and it drew quite a lot of unwanted attention. So I'm in a back corner of this market, and I'm negotiating over some trinket with a vendor in the, in the back corner there. And, and suddenly, he's getting very, very aggressive with me, and he's, he's making me pretty uncomfortable. So I kind of look around, and that's where I notice that there's a group of men who have sort of formed a half circle standing behind me. And as I look beyond them, I suddenly realize I can't see any of my team anywhere. In fact, not only can't I see any of my team, I can't see another American anywhere. So I try to fight down this sense of panic that is starting to well up inside me, and I push my way through the group of men, just cut off the negotiation, take off, and then I, I begin as quickly but as casually as I can muster to make my way through the market and, and look for my team. Ten minutes go by, walking through this market, I can't find anyone on my team. I still have not seen even another American. I finally make it out to the front of the market where we had come in, and that is when I realized that all three of the buses that the team had arrived on are gone. I've been left. I've been forgotten. The team has been together for a week without me. They don't even remember that I exist. I've only been there a couple of hours. They, they've just totally forgotten that I'm even with them. I'm a forgettable guy, apparently. But what matters to me now is that I am alone. I'm alone in the center of a large and pretty dangerous city. In fact, the United States had just issued a travel warning three days before I flew into the country. I don't have a phone, and even if I did, it wouldn't matter. I haven't been with the team long enough for the team leaders to give me their phone numbers. 
Even if I could get my hands on a phone, I don't have a clue of how to make an international phone call from Kenya. I have no way of contacting my parents back home and letting them know what's happening to me. I don't even know where our team is staying. I don't even know if we're staying in Nairobi. In this whole country, I have no idea where to go. I just know that I am alone. And as I look around, I see that the guys who have been standing behind me have followed me through the market and they're standing there watching me. That was a pretty scary moment in my life. So I did the only thing that I could think of. I went up to the nearest vendor, his little market stand, and I bought a machete. (laughs) 17-year-old guy, it's the first thing I thought of. To increase the weapons. I buy the machete. I go back to the front of the market. I then stand where I can see where the vans have been parked. I find a wall. I put my back up against the wall so that no one can come up behind me. I hold my machete and I wait. I tell you, minutes have never moved slower. The minutes become a half hour and then an hour and then another hour. And now it's going to be dark soon. The call to worship throughout the city is beginning. Three hours later, my very worried team leader finally shows back up. And the first thing he says to me is, please don't tell your parents. (laughs) I'm okay, thanks. It's a terrifying thing to be forgotten. To be at once both very dependent and also to be seemingly abandoned. And sometimes in the midst of the chaos and confusion of life, it can feel as though we've been lost or abandoned by God. That somehow we've slipped through the cracks. That we've gotten lost in the shuffle. That our plight has somehow escaped God's notice. Does God see What is happening to me? Does he remember that I'm even here? Can you see me? The psalmist asks a similar question in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And it is because in the course of our lives that we ask questions very much like these that our text this morning in Genesis chapter 8 provides such hope. Because our text begins, but God remembered Noah. This morning we now continue through the section of Genesis that highlights the judgment of God against evil. Remember two weeks ago we considered the warning and the onset of the flood in sense that we have had the onset of a great deal of powdery substance that has kept us from being together. But now we return again to this Middle of the flood narrative, Noah has gone into the ark. They are there on the boat. A warning given to Noah last time we were together that on account of the pervasive wickedness of humanity that God intended to destroy the earth with a flood. To wipe out the world and with it every living creature. But with that warning, God also issued a command to Noah to prepare an ark. An ark that would provide a means of rescue and deliverance for Noah for Noah's family, and for two of every kind of creature in order to repopulate the earth. We saw that that Noah did all that God commanded. His faith was revealed in his active obedience. He built the ark, and then when God told him it's time, Noah went into the ark. 
And then God closed the door, and it began to rain. And every living thing on the face of the land and in the sky that was not on that ark died. As we consider the onset of God's judgment last week, our, our main focus, or two weeks ago, our, our primary focus was on the outpouring of God's wrath against sin, and that the flood serves as an ongoing, enduring warning to the world that God's patience will not suffer evil to exist forever. That a final judgment is in fact coming, a judgment that will be greater and just as sudden as the flood of Noah's day. But this morning as we continue to move through the broad theme of judgment, our attention is going to turn to another facet of God's activity in the flood, something that we might not expect when we're talking about judgment, and that is salvation. That in the midst of judgment, in the midst of wrath and chaos and death, God is still saving his people. Which is the big truth for us this morning, that the flood assures us that God delivers the righteous from the floodwaters of his wrath. As we ponder that truth together this morning, I'd like to give you three reasons from Genesis chapter 8 that gives a Christian a hopeful assurance for the future. So here's reason for hope number one. God remembers his own. To help reframe the context, we'll begin looking in verse 21 of chapter 7. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all of the beasts and all of the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. I think it's easy for us to forget the scope of the destruction that is described in the flood. Two weeks ago, I spent a great deal of time in that sermon emphasizing the scale of the ark, the incredible carpentry project that it represented for Noah when God commissioned to him. And it was undoubtedly a big boat. It's, it's huge. And yet it is puny in comparison with the scope of the flood. A boat that is the size of nearly two football fields is pretty impressive when it's sitting there on dry land. But that boat looks significantly less impressive when it is placed into the middle of an ocean. And it looks downright tiny when you realize that every mountain range, every continent has been covered in water. There is no longer an ocean. The whole globe is now the ocean. The length of the ark was less than one-tenth of a mile. The surface area of the earth that is now covered in the flood is 197 million square miles. The ark, one-tenth of one mile. 
So just to think about this in our minds for a minute, think of taking a stick, throwing it into the ocean, and knowing within about two minutes it's going to be completely lost to your sight, taken up in the vastness of the ocean. That's kind of the scale of what we're talking about here. This huge impressive arc on land now floating like a speck in the middle of the vastness of water that now covers the circumference of the globe. So what happens if this comparatively tiny boat in this vastness of water that is now covering this whole planet, a planet which is itself tiny in the great expanse of just this one galaxy in the totality of the cosmos, what happens if this boat and the people inside it and the animals inside it are forgotten by God? Well, then humanity comes to an end. And the promise that was made back in the garden of a seed of the woman who would come to defeat the serpent would never be realized. And the commitments that God made to Noah to deliver his family would all be broken. And God would be a liar. But verse 1, God remembered Noah and all of the beasts and all of the livestock that were with him in the ark. Now that verse obviously provides great hope to Noah. But how does it provide great hope for us? And for us to understand why that verse provides such hope to all who have ever placed their confidence in a promise that God has made, we need to first understand what it means when the text says that God remembers. Because when you or I remember something, that can mean a number of different things. It can mean that we recall something that had sort of receded to the back of our memory. It might mean that we are made to relect something or someone that we had entirely forgotten, that if someone hadn't brought those things back to mind, we would not even remember that they exist. It's just gone completely out of our heads. It might mean that we have some vague memory of something, but the details of which are fuzzy or unclear. It's just lurking on the outside of our consciousness, but we can't quite pull the details into clear focus. That's the sort of things we mean when we say that we, you and I, remember something. But that is not what our text means when it says that God remembers Noah, because God doesn't forget. Things do not pass out of his mind that then need to be recalled later. He doesn't need to dive back into his memory bank in order to recollect past things. He doesn't need to sort through the files of previous events in order to remember what had gone on before. God is omniscient, meaning that at all times, God knows all things. And so to say then that God remembers is not a function of memory. It is a function of faithfulness. When God remembers, it means that God is acting in covenant faithfulness to promises that he has made. And in that, we find out that God does not get carried away in his act of judgment to the extent that he forgets to save at the same time. It is not as though God gets so involved in this great act of destroying the world and the fountains of the deep from below and the rains from above and this global destruction. He doesn't get so involved in that task of destroying the world that he forgets at the same time he is delivering these people 
on this boat. We are like that, where we get so focused on one task that we forget other things, where we are struggling to multitask. I'm a you know, classic guy raising his hand here. I just can't do two things at the same time. We get so fixated on something that we neglect or forget to do something else important. God's not like that. In fact, if Noah and the creatures on the ark were forgotten for a moment by God, if they were not every moment in his mind, they would instantly cease to exist. Everything that is exists only because God continually wills it to be so. So even in bringing the world to a state of chaos and confusion in judgment, at the same time, God does not neglect for one moment his work of saving Noah and every living thing on that ark. And I will tell you, that is reason for hope, not only for Noah, but for every one of us who have placed our hope in a promise that God has made. Because God remembers his own and he keeps his promises to his people. I want to pause here for a moment and apply that truth directly to our lives in this way. No matter what you are going through, no matter how alone or forgotten at times you may feel in the course of your life, if you have trusted in God's promises, then know this, God has not forgotten you and he will deliver you. I think it's fair to wonder if at some point Noah began to question if they would ever get off of that boat. The flood lasted for 150 days. That's the time in which the waters are increasing on the earth. But then it takes a significant amount of time for the waters to fully recede from the earth. And so putting the dates that we are given together, the time in which Noah goes into the ark from which he comes out of the ark is a time period of a little bit over a year. More than 365 days spent on that ark. I mean, who's counting, but you've now been on this boat for 8,760 hours. The last 525,600 minutes of your life have been spent in a smelly, noisy, vertigo-inducing floating zoo. I sure hope that Noah was not an introvert, because that might have just been awful. All of this time, you've been spent in the middle of this floating zoo, wondering to yourself, are the waters still rising or they're going down? I mean, what reference really is there? The whole earth has been covered. You have no point of reference to know if the sky is getting closer or farther away. So does it ever begin to cross your mind? Is there ever even a quiet but growing doubt deep in your heart about whether God has forgotten or has changed his mind? I think it's fair to wonder if Noah ever felt that way because we so often feel that way. Because like Noah, it isn't as though we are unaware of promises that God has made to us. We know God's promises to us. We have a copy of them right here. Many of us are able to recite backwards and forwards the promises that God has made to us. And also like Noah, it isn't as though we are lacking for evidence of God's goodness and kindness to us. Spend just a moment looking at your life and regardless of what your circumstances are, you have evidence of the kindness of God toward you in your life. And yet despite all of these things, when hardship comes into our lives or when the world seems chaotic around us, when it feels as though we are in the midst of a sea in which we are lost, we often end up feeling like the psalmist in Psalm chapter 13, alone and forgotten and wondering, how long, O Lord, before you remember that I'm here? Will you forget me forever? We are left with big questions, with hurting hearts, hearts that become prone to doubt whether God, in fact, sees or cares. 
But the life of Noah reminds us that God remembers his people and that he remembers his promises. And that no matter what you may be going through in life, that you are not alone, you are not forsaken, and that every promise of God remains true. Because God is a God of covenant faithfulness. So we sang a moment ago, great is thy faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Genesis 8 shows us that Christians can live with a hopeful assurance for the future because number one, God remembers his own. The second reason that this text gives for hopeful assurance is that God's sovereignty is absolute. Notice what happens immediately after the text tells us that God remembered Noah and all of the animals on the ark. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he made. He sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand, and he took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days, and he set forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. You recall back in the opening chapters of Genesis that in creation, God brings order out of chaos and confusion. And then as we saw in the flood in judgment, God brings chaos and confusion back upon the earth. And now we find that in mercy, God is restoring order once again out of chaos and confusion. The announcement of God's covenant loyalty in remembering Noah here in Genesis chapter 8 is then immediately followed by God's acts of mercy and deliverance. God's remembering his faithfulness is not something that is theoretical. It is active in what God does to deliver his people. And so we read that God caused a wind to blow. The image that comes to mind when I read this, if you've ever been in a building where a water pipe has burst or something like that, and they bring in the water remediation, they bring in those huge fans, and they turn on those huge fans to make sure that the water gets dried out of the carpets and that mold doesn't happen. It is as though God turns on the fans of the universe and begins to blow away the flood. So he causes a wind to blow, and it says he causes the rain to stop. He causes the fountains of the deep to close once again, and then the waters to slowly abate from the earth. And in all of that, we are reminded yet again of the supremacy and comprehensive sovereignty of our God. Because at a moment, according to his word, according to his command, the rains began to fall, the earth opens up, the fountains of the deep unleash destruction on the earth, and then at his command, all of these things cease just as suddenly as they began. At his command, the waters begin to recede. Total sovereignty in judgment. 
total sovereignty in salvation. Whatever God proposes to do, nothing and no one can prevent him. I think that there is a beauty in the way in which God allows Noah to gradually begin to experience both his deliverance and the restoration of the new world. Noah first sends out a raven. This raven doesn't return, which is kind of a good sign, but it turns out that choosing a raven was a bad choice because it's a strong flyer. It just keeps flying to and fro around the earth. It's not landing anywhere. It's just tired of being in the ark, and it's not coming back. So we go to the next bird, and we send out a dove this time. And at first, it doesn't find a place to land, so it comes back. Seven days go by. Noah sends out the dove again. This time, the dove returns. Still no place to land permanently, but it comes back holding in its beak an olive branch which reveals to Noah that not only are the waters on the earth finally abating, but that the land that Noah and his family are about to return to is not going to be a barren wasteland. I mean, what expectations does Noah legitimately have about what the earth is going to look like when that door finally opens? None. There is no reason that after this destruction, it should not be a complete, obliterated desolation. But before he goes out, God is already gradually allowing Noah to experience the fact that God is a God of loving kindness who has restored the world that he has made. God destroyed the world, but now he is restoring it. That there is life and fruitfulness that is waiting on the other side of the ark's door. I think one of the things we should recollect here, going back to the creation account, you remember we talked about the sequencing of the days of creation, that in the initial three days of creation, God forms his creation, and then in the final three days of creation, God fills his creation. He prepares the earth in the initial three days for the life that he will then fill it with, because God is a God who cares about life. He is the God of life, something that we celebrate on a Sunday like this, Sanctity of Life Sunday. God is a God who is the giver of life and who delights in abundant life. And here, like in the original creation, God is once again forming his creation as a preparation for the life with which he is about to once again fill it. There are plants that are growing, prepared for the animals and the creatures and the people who are going to reemerge from the ark. Finally, the dove goes out, and this time it doesn't return. And all of this is now a powerful display to Noah of God's sovereignty and goodness. That God is sovereign in judgment and destruction. That God is sovereign in deliverance and in salvation. And that God is sovereign in restoration and in renewal and in new life. Why is all of that encouraging to us? Again, we understand why that would be encouraging to Noah. Why does that matter for us? Let me suggest this. The sovereignty of God in all things gives believers peace and hope in the middle of difficult times. Some of you may be familiar with the term doom scrolling. Doom scrolling is when someone reads the news online and just scrolls down through it, and because this is the way the news is, you're just rolling down pages and pages of bad news. How many of you today, when you read the news, get warm, fuzzy feelings inside that just everything is going great in the world today. It's not the feeling when we get when we read the news. This is where this term doom scrolling comes from. It seems like it is always bad news on basically all fronts. And it's easy 
for a sense of despair to begin to invade our hearts or our outlook for the future, when our gaze is fixed upon the circumstances of our lives or upon the problems of the world. It's easy for us to go into a place of fear and of worry and anxiety that we grow consumed with dread for the future, a future that seems in our hearts to be so increasingly dark. I saw an advertisement for a Disney movie. I think it's a Disney movie recently. They're, they're doing Inside Out 2. Inside Out 1 was an animated movie that the characters of that movie were all emotions in a girl's head. And they have to do an Inside Out 2 apparently because they need to add another emotional character in her head. And the character that they're adding is anxiety. Because our world today is consumed with anxiety. I regularly, just to keep up with the news, have the New York Times front page that I read every day just to keep up with what's happening in the world. They have a whole section of their newspaper that is now devoted to anxiety. That is the world that we are living in. But brothers and sisters, that should not be the mark of the Christian. Because, friends, God is in control. When the waters of flood rise, God is in control. And when the waters of flood recede, God is in control. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Do we believe that? Do we trust in that? Because a heart that is driven to fear and worry and anxiety, and even in the midst of a troubled world, a heart driven by fear has not sufficiently trusted in the sovereignty of God. The final reason to hope from our passage this morning is that God is a God who brings salvation through judgment. Verse 13. The 601st year in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off of the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. God preserved the life of every creature that went into the ark. Before the flood, God seized the wickedness and the evil that is pervasive in the world. And to be just, and to be holy, and to be good, God cannot simply allow this evil to continue unpunished. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. He cannot simply grant universal amnesty to those who practice evil. He does not ignore the evil of humankind or the corruption of the world. Instead, in righteousness, God judges it. And it is in and through this judgment that God works salvation. Notice that God's salvation does not come at the cost of his justice. God's grace does not come at the cost of his holiness. It is in the middle of the floodwaters of his wrath that Noah and his family and all those creatures are preserved in the ark. 
See, those who hope for God's salvation but deny the claims of God's justice have fundamentally misunderstood what salvation really means. There is no salvation for humanity or for creation wherein the righteous demands of God's justice are not wholly satisfied. And so Noah took wood, and with it, by the command of God, he fashioned a means of salvation from the outpouring of God's wrath against sin. But a greater son from Noah's family, thousands of years later, would come to work a far greater salvation. And this son also would take wood, and with it, by the command of God, entered into and endured the flood waters of God's wrath against sin poured out upon him on a cross. And in these floodwaters of wrath at Calvary, we find that judgment and salvation most perfectly meet. Judgment enough to satisfy all justice. Salvation enough to save to the uttermost. Noah points us to a greater Savior, to Jesus Christ who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so the flood assures us that God delivers the righteous from the floodwaters of his wrath. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God in whom justice and mercy perfectly meet. That salvation does not come at the cost of judgment and justice against sin, but that you at all times work righteousness, righteousness in judgment, righteousness in salvation. And so as we look to the flood over these last couple of weeks, what important reminders we have that you know how to judge the guilty, but that you remember those who have placed their hope in the promises that you have made. So, Father, help us to cling to those promises. Help us to trust in your great faithfulness. For those here this morning, Father, who may never have trusted in your promises, may never have submitted their life to Christ, I pray that even this morning they would cease trusting in themselves or in this world that cannot save but that you would lead them to Christ who is the door while the door remains open. We ask these things in his name. Amen.